Let's open our Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29, if you will, please. Now then, I gave you a title for the last chapter. The Lord warns Jerusalem in chapter 28. And by the way, I'll give you a few more titles before we get into the 29th chapter. The Lord warns Jerusalem, the 28th chapter. And then the 29th chapter, there are two divisions. And the first part is the Lord humbles Jerusalem, verses 1 through 14. And then the Lord appeals to Jerusalem, verses 15 through 24, appeals. So we're in the second part of this, uh, the second statement, the Lord humbles Jerusalem. We already have studied the Lord warns Jerusalem in the 28th chapter. So in this chapter now that's before us, the 29th chapter of Isaiah, we have the Lord humbles Jerusalem and the Lord appeals to Jerusalem. So that's what we'll study tonight. The first 14 verses is the warning, I mean the humbling, rather. The first uh, 14 verses, the Lord humbles Jerusalem. Then the last, from 15 through 24, the Lord appeals to Jerusalem. So let's notice the first part of it, and we'll take it verse by verse and try to make some comments on it as we study it together. Isaiah chapter 29. Notice it says, Woe to Ariel. Woe. This is a, a warning. And a humbling as we progress on down. So, um, notice, it says, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Oh, so we have to identify that city. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Yet I will, I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. Now then, this word is... Unless we study into it, we find it is a code name for Jerusalem. And it means Lion of God. Lion. Jerusalem was like a lion. Notice it says the city where David dwelt, so we know where that was. So that identifies it as Jerusalem. And we know that add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices, a place of sacrifice. And by the way, it not only has a code name of Lion of God for Jerusalem, but It also has another name in the Hebrew, and it means an altar hearth, hearth, I should say. So that's the place they killed sacrifices. Animal sacrifices were slain. It would become a place of slaughter. Now, the lion is a symbol also of Assyria, and Assyria is now going to be God's lion against Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is a God's lion in name only because there was another lion coming in that had the power to destroy. And so, in a sense, Jerusalem was claiming a name, but not the power. And the enemy was assuming the power and would be the lion. So, what the prophet was saying is Assyria is now God's lion, and Jerusalem is God's lion in name only. And so, he's going to use this Assyrian power to humble his own people. So let's notice again in verse 1. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, that's the yearly sacrifices, let them kill sacrifices. And so it was also not only uh, the line of God, the name, but it was a place 
where uh, the an altar hearth would be established or a place of sacrifices, animal sacrifices were to be killed. In verse 2 it says, Yet I will distress Ariel. You know, God said, and he, let's keep Jerusalem in mind. He says, I will distress Jerusalem. He doesn't say, I will destroy Jerusalem. You know, sometimes God brings distress to humble us, but he does not use the word destroy. Aren't you glad? Because as Jerusalem was God's chosen city, you and I and the church, uh, the church is God's uh, institution. The Lord Jesus Christ said, upon this rock I will build my church. And also individuals, you and I as Christians are God's people. And he doesn't say concerning either one of us that he will destroy, but there's sometimes he will distress. And he will bring, bring distress. And notice it says in verse 2, And there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel, or as, a, as an altar hearth, or a place of sacrifice. So God is going to use this other lion, this lion of Assyria, Sennacherib, actually, the ruler over Assyria, to bring a siege upon Jerusalem and cause sorrow and distress, and yet God would not forsake his own people in the midst of all of this. So if you notice verse 3, he says, And I will camp against thee round about, and will lay siege against thee with a, with a mount, and I will raise forts against thee. Now this he did. God was going to humble this proud city instead of... Uh, of roaring and frightening the enemy, the lion would only whisper from the dust. If you'll notice down in verse 4, let's read verse 4. Thou shalt be brought down and shall speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall be low out of the dust, and thy voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spirit out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. So, the roaring and frightening... The enemy, the lion, would only whisper from the dust. Instead of their sacrifice being accepted by God, the entire city would become an altar where the sacrifices were made, and God would make his people a sacrifice as well to this great lion that would come roaring in. And you know, you might say, well, when did these things happen to this city? God began to turn on the heat in 701 B.C. when the Assyrian army marched triumphantly through Judah and almost took Jerusalem. And God defeated this Assyrian army in an instant. If you turn over to the 37th chapter, just flip on over to the 37th chapter, verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred and fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. So in an instant, God got rid of the enemy in an instant's time. In fact, if you look at verse 35 there, Isaiah 37, drop on back up to verse 35. God says, For I will defend this city... I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And just because God had promised that uh, David he would defend Jerusalem, and not only that, uh, he had promised that uh, for his own sake he would defend, because he had a covenant and he would do what he always promised to do. You know, God will not forsake his people for his great namesake, for, uh, 
Samuel said in the book of First Samuel, he says, The Lord will not say, forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it's pleased the Lord to make you his people. And when God promises he'll take care of us, he's going to do exactly that. In spite of all of our uh, shortcomings, he's still going to take care of us. And suddenly he brought the Assyrian army to defeat, like blowing away the dust or chaff. And this kind of discipline should have brought Judah back to the Lord, but after the death of Hezekiah, they returned to their sins. And instead of uh, returning to God, they returned to their sins. And then later on in 586 B.C., God sent the Babylonians who conquered Jerusalem and destroyed it, taking thousands of the Jews into captivity. So they wouldn't learn by the first lesson and by the first enemy. Instead of turning back to God, they turned back to their sins. So God says, well, okay, I'll send the Babylonians and they'll take care of that. And they took them into captivity in 586 B.C. And God did, we've studied last week, His strange work, His work of chastening and judging. God did His strange work and permitted His own people to be slain by the enemy. And the city indeed was like an altar hearth. And thousands were sacrificed to the wrath of the enemy because of their sins. And they would not uh, really turn to God and seek His help. But they rather rebelled against God. And that's what brought the chastening hand of God down upon them. Let's read verse uh, 5 and 6. It says, Moreover, the multitude of thy strangers shall be like small dust. Uh, Israel's strangers, uh, Jerusalem's strangers, like small dust. And the multitude of the terrible ones shall be as chaff that passeth away. Yea, it shall be in an, at an instant suddenly. We read in the 37th chapter where it was an instant suddenly. That he came suddenly and destroyed the Assyrian. The Assyrian is now God's lion, of course. And then God destroys that lion that came against Jerusalem and laid them uh, to the dust in an instant. Suddenly this came upon them. And it says, Thou shalt be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. A divine visitation was announced as coming, that would be coming upon them. But then in verses 7 and 8, Isaiah looked down the highway of history to the end of time when Jerusalem would be attacked by the armies of the world. In verse 7 and 8, we get into some prophetic things because we see things here that that did not happen in historical judgment of Assyria or Babylon. We see some things of the future. He looked forward to the times when Jerusalem would be attacked by the armies of the world, and prophetic students called it the Battle of Armageddon. And we have references to show that there is a future judgment that will come upon the nations that attack Jerusalem. And in the book of Revelation, and well, in the book of Zechariah as well, too. In verse, let's read verses 7 and 8 as he looked forward in history. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel or Jerusalem, even all that fight against her and her munition or her fortress, and that distress her shall be as a dream of the night vision. In other words, it'll, all the plans of the enemy to destroy Jerusalem, not only then, but especially in the future, will come to naught. It'll be like what? 
shall be as a dream of a night vision. How, that's a fleeting thing, isn't it? It's just an instant when this comes across a, a person's mind in the, in the midst of his sleep. And it will vanish away just as quickly because all of their plans will not succeed against God's people. Verse 8 says, It shall be even as when an hungry man dreameth, and beholdeth he eateth, but he awaketh and his soul is empty. In other words, it was just a dream. He didn't, didn't profit anything by it. He dreamed that he was hungry, and he dreamed he got something to eat. But when he awoke, well, naturally he was just as hungry as at the beginning because you don't eat in a dream. You think you do. And they were thinking they would destroy Jerusalem. And they will think that in the future in the book of Revelation, but God's going to bring all their dream and their vision to naught. Now, it goes on to continue in verse 8 and says, Or as when a thirsty man dreameth, and behold, he drinketh. He's, he's dreaming, and he's thirsty. And behold, he drinketh, but he awaketh, and behold, he is faint, and his soul hath appetite. He's still thirsty. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. All the nations are just dreaming something that when they awake, they'll find has no substance whatsoever, and God is going to bring judgment upon all those nations that even dream that they can take Jerusalem. And in the future, in the book of Revelation, we're going to find that actually what takes place is altogether different than what men dream and what the enemies of God's people at the end of time dream that they're going to take that's going to take place against his people because it's only going to be a fleeting thought in their vision and in their dream and when they awake there's no substance to it. Look at Zechariah chapter 14 if you will. Zechariah 14. And then we'll turn to some scripture in the book of Revelation. Zechariah 14, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. The day of the Lord. This is a time of, that refers to the day of, of darkness, the day of judgment, the day of suffering, the day, a great and terrible day in the book of Joel. You find in the book of Revelation, the day of the Lord, when it will be fulfilled. And he tells that what's going to happen here, beginning with verse 2. He says, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem. Who's, who's going to do this? God is going to do this. I will gather all nations. We call it the Battle of Armageddon in the book of Revelation. I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rivaled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off, shall be, not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. That's when the Lord comes back in Revelation chapter 19. His feet shall stand upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem. And you have it recorded earlier in the book of Revelation, before 19 too. There's two passages of Scripture that show you that battle of Armageddon and describe it, though it takes place when Jesus comes back to the earth. It's when it actually takes place, though it's described in chapters 14 and 16 of Revelation. And we'll read those passages for you in a moment. So it says, And in that, his feet shall stand in that day, you have Zechariah 14, verse 4, uh, upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, 
And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a, a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah, and the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. When's all the saints coming with the Lord? What chapter in Revelation? The 19th chapter. And all the saints with thee. He comes for the saints earlier in Revelation chapter 4, right? And they're with the Lord during the tribulation period, but He comes with all the saints with thee. Revelation 19. Remember all the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and Jesus comes on a white stallion, and the armies of heaven, the saints of God, all those clothed in white raiment, come with Him back to judgment. And Zechariah gives us some details of what's going to happen. We're told in Revelation 19 that all of the great war and the great carnage that will take place, and he calls the fowls of the air to feast upon the carrion, uh, the carrion birds to feast upon the flesh of great men uh, and mighty men and captains, and all the battle takes place, but the Lord is the victor there. And it says um, in verse 6, and it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark. But it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night. But it shall come to pass that at the evening time it shall be light. And it shall be, be in that day. And we're talking not about a particular day, but a period of time. In that day that the living water shall go, go out from Jerusalem. All life. And all blessings will come, flow from Jerusalem in that day. You tie it over even into the 20th chapter of Revelation where the blessings come upon uh, the, the people during the millennium. And all the living waters shall flow. Half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. And it takes on a future aspect as well. Then it says in verse 9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, in that day there shall be one Lord and His name one. All the land shall be turned as a plain from uh, Jeba to Remon, south of Jerusalem, and shall be lifted up and inhabited in her, her place from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate unto the corner gate. Remember we studied those gates in the book of Nehemiah where you go around the city and all the gates were set back uh, and built upon their uh, hinges and from the tower of Haniel unto the king's winepress. Now, verse 11, and we'll quit with that. The whole chapter would be good, but we'll have to stop in this reference with the 11th verse. And men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. There has never been a time yet that Jerusalem has been safely inhabited. Safely. But there will be a time that Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. We can verily see and easily see that it's not talking about the return of, of the nation of Israel to their homeland in 48 and up till this present time because we know that they're not now safely inhabited, are they? So it's not talking about that generation and that period of time. It's talking about a future time that's yet future to us as well. And it will only take place in the book of Revelation as, we, as it's fulfilled 
and in a very future time there. So we won't find that uh, taking place until then. When it looks as if the city is about to fall, the enemies are going to fall, and the armies of the enemies are going to fall, and Jesus will return and deliver his people, and the enemy's victory will vanish away, just like it vanished away as far as Assyria was concerned in the Old Testament. So, uh, let me give you two more passages in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, and then in Revelation chapter 16. That was Zechariah that we gave you. Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. This is describing what will take place. Chapter 16 is describing what will take place. And chapter 19, where Jesus comes back to to the earth, will describe how and when it will take place. But notice in, in Revelation 14, verse 14, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. What's he going to do with this sharp sickle? And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in the heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for our grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into what? The great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Go up over to the 16th chapter, verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon. This is Satan, the devil, the dragon. And out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. These are his emissaries, you might say. For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of, the, of that great day of God Almighty. Now, what's the, the devil's going to... In other words, God has control even of the devil. But the devil's going to do the gathering of these armies against God. See, these are the spirits of devils, working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And you go on down and read the rest of it. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake. Did not we read that already in Isaiah? And the, the judgment that came upon Assyria in this form and fashion, God thundering and lightning and judgment, it's a sound of judgment, 
it was only a, a, a minute thing compared to what will take place when the judgment comes in the future. And it says, And there was a great earthquake such as were not since men were upon the earth so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided in three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a very a, a great hail out of heaven every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. So all these things are going to transpire at the time that Isaiah foresaw a great multitude of all nations, back in Isaiah 29.7, coming against Jerusalem and against her fortress. And all these that distress her shall be as a dream and as a night vision. In other words, all of their attempts are going to come to naught when Jesus comes again because he's going to win the battle. And by the way, we're coming with him, but he's going to do the fighting. All the saints of God and the saints with thee, we read in what, Zechariah? And the saints with thee. But what's going to happen? Who's going to do the fighting? The Lord. Because back in the, even in the kings, God told the people to come all together. But he says, you don't do anything. You just be there because the battle is the Lord's. And sometimes we just have to be there. Just be present. And let him do the winning. Because he has the power to do it. You know, God has all power. And he will do all things after the, his counsel of his own will. Now, let's read on down. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 29, and I'm trying to keep my references straight tonight. I hope I have done fairly well. But in verse 9 it says, Stay yourselves and wonder. Cry ye out and cry. They are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord hath poured out upon... You, the spirit of deep sleep, and hath closed your eyes, closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, the seers, hath he covered. He closed their eyes. Israel was so blinded to what was going on in the midst of all that God was doing for them. God was using uh, the Assyrians to discipline them, and yet God was not forsaking them. In, in the context of this scripture, we said verses 7 and 9 look to that future, but then now we're back to the time of historically when God was talking to them that, you know, they were still blinded. They'll be blinded in the future. In fact, Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 11 verse 8 that they're blinded even now. Look in Romans 11 verse 8. It says, According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. Isn't it something that God's own chosen people could still have scales upon their eyes so they can't see anything? And Israel is still that way. I'm, I'm talking about nationally. I don't mean that individuals of them are not saved on an individual basis because they are. We know the converted Jews and many converted Jewish preachers that sound their voice on the radio and television. And we know that there are a great number of them that are saved. But we're talking about as a nation, they're still blinded. 
And as a people, as a whole, they do not accept Christ as the Messiah. And their eyes are still blinded. And Paul tells about it in the book of Romans. And back, holds your place in Isaiah. We'll read on down. And there are many references in the New Testament to what we just said, but we'll just suffice with Romans 11, verse 8. But back in the book of Isaiah, and holds your place there, it says, For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, and hath closed your eyes. The prophets and your fathers, the seers, the seers that's the, the prophets and the seers, hath he covered. In other words, they can't see either. And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed. The, vision, the whole vision, in fact, the, the whole vision or the very book of Isaiah itself, if not opened or read or understood, was like to them a book that is sealed. They just didn't have the eyes to understand what God was talking about. And he says it's like a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, or learned, uh, to an educated person, saying, read this, I pray thee. And he said, I cannot, for it is sealed. In other words, he doesn't know anything about it. Even a man that is educated. And then he goes on down in verse 12 and says, And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. In other words, I, don't have any, I do not have an education to, to understand it. I, I don't know what it's talking about. So to both the learned and the unlearned, it was as a sealed book. And why... Were these people of Jerusalem so ignorant of what was going on? The next verse explains it. Why could they not understand anything God was talking about? In verse 13, he says, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips to honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men." See, they had only the outward ritual and not the inward reverence and worship. Jesus warned against that very same thing. He says, you're a people. Remember in Matthew, let's see, what chapter? I may have it here. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 8. He says, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth. And I'm only reading a portion of this passage with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And that's exactly what Isaiah said. And you know, this is a warning to us. Let's not worship God with mere outward ritual. Let's worship God with inward reverence and worship. And that's the only thing God is pleased with. What does He say? Isaiah 29, verse 13, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me. That sounds great, doesn't it? That makes a great outward show. They draw near me with their mouth and with their lips they do honor me. But he says, But what? Look. But have removed their heart far from me. And their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. You and I need to Certainly beware that we fall not into that category. You know, in the Proverbs it says, Son, give me thine heart. What does God want? Son, give me thine heart. When we get up on our knees in prayer, 
Let's don't just speak words. Let's give God our heart. Let's pray from our heart and open our heart up before God and say, God, this is what I am. This is, these are my problems. These are my needs. These are my, uh, the things I deal with. God, you take care of it. And let's talk to God about it. When we talk to God about it, we get the answer. And He helps. He helps. And so it's a heart matter, isn't it? And every one of us need to do that. We need to be encouraged to do it, and we need to have the warning. In verse 14 it says, Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Despite of the fact that they were not listening to God, and they were so ignorant of what was going on, despite of their hardness, God says, I'm going to do a marvelous work among this people. Isn't it amazing that you and I can go along and, and jog along and mess up and, and do things wrong and end up uh, in a lot of ways that are not pleasing to God and then we, we realize we need the Lord. But anyway, in the midst of all of our sins and shortcomings, what does God do? He says, I'm going to still do a marvelous work among this people. God doesn't forsake His own. We make a lot of mistakes. We do a lot of crazy things. They did. And, and they, they had other aspects to turn to. They had other people they were going to turn to. In fact, I don't know if we'll finish this, but in verse 15, we take up the second section of this. In verse 15, if you'll notice. And we take up his appeal to Jerusalem. And notice on the basis of which he appeals to them. He says, Woe to them! His appeal is a warning, and yet it is an appeal. It says, Woe unto them that seek, seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord. What were they doing? That seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and, and their works are in the dark, and they say, Who seeth us, and who knoweth us? To the secret plan of, of the Judeans, to seek help from Egypt, this was their plan. We're going to seek help from Egypt against Assyria. They were not turning to God. And to these secret plans, God says, Woe, because of these political tactics that they had, who thought that God would not hold them accountable for what they were doing. They were trying to, to do the wrong thing. They were seeking to hide counsel from God. And their counsel was, let's go to Egypt. In fact, if you turn over to the next chapter... It says in verse 2, the 30th chapter, verse 2, that go down into Egypt and have not asked at my mouth. Look, chapter 30, verse 2. These same people, they go, they were rebellious children. Verse 1, they go down to Egypt and have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. So, here's people... Here are people that had a counsel to do something that they knew was against the will of God. They knew that it was wrong. They knew that they were not seeking God's counsel. And they were trying to hide the counsel that they were seeking to go down to Egypt and get their help from there. And also, not only in the 30th chapter, but in the 31st chapter, verse 1, it says, Woe to them that go to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. So it's evident what they were doing. They were saying, we know where to turn. 
do you and I, and I may not get any further, but I want to get this point over. Do you and I, in times of trouble, hide our counsel from God and say, now, I'm going to do it this way, God. You know, I'm, I've got my plan and I'm going to look to the world for help or the flesh and I'm going to seek my own way out instead of turning to God for His help. We do that sometimes. Sometimes we just do that. We just say, now, I've got this figured out. If I'll go to this, this fellow or that fellow or this politician or this governor or this representative or this person, boy, now, I've got it figured out and it'll work out all right. Don't put your trust in a man. The, the middle verse of the Bible says, tells us not to put our trust in man. It's in the Psalms. And then two verses later, it says not to put your... The next verse, it says not to put your trust in princes, even. The, the most... Uh, the highest of men. Don't put your trust in ordinary man, and certainly don't... And don't put your trust in those that are in authority, princes. And it's the center verse of the Bible. So, it's in the Psalms. I could give it to you, but I'll go on with this. I'd have to look in there and see. I have it marked, I'm sure. But anyway, uh, this thought that we're dealing with in verse 15 begins to show the Lord appealing to Jerusalem. But he says, whoa. And he exposes their devious political tactics. Sometimes we have devious political tactics. And, and notice this verse says, Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They think, what we're doing, God doesn't see it. And they say, who seeth us? They say, who sees us? Well, I tell you, and who knoweth us? Men may think that other men do not see. You may think that father or mother doesn't see, son or daughter, husband or wife, friends, family, church, brethren, whoever. But God sees all. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord are upon the ways of man. He seeth all his goings. And it says there is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. And another verse of Scripture says the eyes of the Lord are upon the ways of man, beholding the evil and the good. So he sees both the evil and the good. We don't have to be like the Pharisee that says, Lord, you know what I do, and I'm going to tell you because I fast twice a week and I give tithe of all that I possess. You don't have to tell God what all you do. Did you know that? He already knows what you do. He knows what we don't do as well. But the, the, what, the publican would not much as lift up his eyes to heaven but smote upon his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew that God knew what he did too, but he wasn't going to mention it. Sometimes it's best left unsaid what all we do. Because it's not worth repeating, but he, he did realize this. He said, God propitiate me as sacrifice for sin. That's what the word be merciful means. I know that I cannot approach your presence apart from a sacrifice. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Listen, we're not through with this chapter. Well, our time is gone. I guess we better be through with some in some way or another. So we'll pick up with verse 16. It's a very interesting verse 16. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. This entire thing is more or less talking about them refusing to hear and to 
but in, in the first hand, one and a half hand, it looks like that the Lord is is uh, closer us. Yeah. That's right. But he's done it because they are rebellious people. Now, if you turn to the next chapter, verse 1, he says, Woe to the rebellious, rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, and not of me. In other words, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. In other words, it's like Pharaoh of old. You remember, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Yes, but Pharaoh rebelled against God. And then God continues... And he says, uh, whomsoever he will, he hardeneth. And when a man rebels so much, then God can, can continue that condition until that man really does. He says, except they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and be converted and I heal them. In other words, you turn back to the sixth chapter of Isaiah. Let me answer this for you right quick before we leave. And uh, <clears throat> notice. In Isaiah 6, when God sent Isaiah, after he had had his vision, and he says, oh, Whom will I send and who will go for us? And the Lord said, and Isaiah said, Here am I, send me, verse 8. And verse 9, he tells him who to go to. He said, and that's Isaiah 6, verse 9, He said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. So their eyes were blinded. Okay. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed.